Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. It is now. It's good. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. In 1963, Brian Epstein's stable of stars had occupied the number one position in the UK charts for an incredible 37 weeks. In just over a year, he had gone from running the record department at his father's store to becoming one of the most successful impresarios of all time. He had proved to the UK and most of Europe that the Beatles were not going to go away anytime soon. With his sights firmly set on the USA, Brian Epstein would spend the next three years managing a worldwide phenomenon, the like of which had not been seen before and is likely not to be seen again. But it wasn't going to be easy. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the concluding part of the story of Brian Epstein. The man who built the Beatles into a cult is now as well known as they are, and next week his book, uh, called A Cellar Full of Noise, is published. And uh, I was immediately struck by their, their, their music, their beat, and uh, their sense of humour actually on stage. Brian was a, a beautiful guy, Brian Epstein, and he was a, an intuitive, theatrical guy, and he knew we had something and presented it well. The musicianship was going downhill, never mind the boredom of dunes. I never 
thought that there would be anything less than the greatest stars in the world. I hated the Philippines. It was one of those places where you uh, knew they were waiting for the fight, you know. And I didn't know, personally, I didn't know anything about that Madame Marcus had invited us to dinner. The demonstration of one thing or another was, you know, riots were happening. What do you say there Well, I saw five in sort of outfits, you know, that were, were doing it, they were actually kicking and, and booing and shouting. Did you get kicked from No, I was very delicate and moved every time they touched me. <laughs> I have prepared a statement, which I will read, which has had John Lennon's absolute approval this afternoon uh, with myself by telephone. said we're more uh, television is more popular than Jesus I might have got away with it the Klan is going to come out here because we're the only organization that will come out and make a stop to these accusations this is nothing but blasphemy I think they're going to be successful in my estimation a lot of other people's estimation for many many years but uh, obviously it won't be the same kind of success. It's obviously going to what be a matured kind of success. But he was just a beautiful fella, you know, and it's terrible. What are your plans now? Well, we haven't made any. I mean, it's only just, we only just heard it. The local shopkeeper said, sorry about the news. I said, what news? He said, your friend's done. Our friend is gone. If anyone was the first people, it was Brian. All the time the Beatles were rocking the top of the UK charts with their first few singles, the American audience remained unfazed. There seemed to be some sort of anti-British barrier that Brian Epstein and George Martin would find impossible to break through. Capital, which was owned by EMI, was adamant that the Beatles would not do anything in their market, a market that was dominated by its own brand of teenage music led by Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Capital insisted that the Beatles would have no prospects in America, despite songs such as She Loves You remaining at the top of the UK chart for two months. One thing Brian Epstein had in bucket loads was perseverance. He flew out to America in late 1963, and after intense negotiations and a lot of corporate deliberation, Capital agreed to release I Wanna Hold Your Hand, which would reach number one in the UK chart on November the 29th. The release date in America was set for Boxing Day. 
Brian Epstein had met Ed Sullivan all but briefly once before. Sullivan and his wife had been caught up in the chaos that was Beatlemania whilst at Heathrow Airport following one of his European talent spotting excursions. He had managed to meet with Brian and arranged tentative bookings on his US TV show. Ed Sullivan's TV show had been on air for 20 years and was famous the world over for being the show that presented Elvis Presley in 1956 singing Hound Dog filmed only from the waist up. And so, the British invasion of the US officially began on February 7th, 1964, and the Beatles flew into JFK Airport met by hundreds of screaming fans. Here he is, Ed Sullivan! Now yesterday and today our theatre's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now tonight you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Wanna Hold Your Hand had been number one in the American Top 100 for just over two weeks. It was exactly the breath of fresh air the country needed as it was still reeling from the death of President Kennedy just two months earlier. In an interview Brian gave to the New Yorker a few weeks prior to their arrival, he said, I think that America is ready for the Beatles. When they come, they will hit this country for six. Let's not forget that Brian also said that the Beatles were going to be bigger than Elvis Presley. More than ever, he had every right to have faith in his own words. The Ed Sullivan shows ensured that the Beatles were watched by over 70 million viewers on those Sunday evenings in February 1964. The Beatles were only paid $10,000, but of course Brian realised that such a small amount would be worth it, as it would be overshadowed by the vast benefits such exposure on primetime TV would bring. It was unstoppable. Just over a month later, the Billboard chart had Beatles singles at 79, 68, 65, 58, 46, 41, 31 and the entire top five positions. They held the top two positions in the album charts and there were pre-orders of over two million for Can't Buy Me Love. Now all Brian had to do was figure out a way to be able to get the Beatles to perform live in front of such an immense audience. Back in the early days, which by now seemed a lifetime away, it would have been relatively easy. The group would tour two or three times a year, travelling in vans, cars or buses from town to town. For the Beatles' first tour of the USA, Brian laid out the plans for an unbelievable schedule. 32 shows in 24 cities in 34 days. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard them ringing. I never had them at all Till there was you If it was evident before, then there was certainly no doubt now that the Beatles had become prisoners of their own fame. Finding themselves confined to hotel rooms, 
being whisked from city to city in limousines and aeroplanes with no real contact with the outside world apart from the halls and theatres where they would belt out their hits struggling to be heard over the screams of thousands of adoring fans. Brian would find that there was less and less time to devote to his other acts such as Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer and Cilla Black. But Brian's ambition knew no bounds and who could blame him? The world had not seen anything like this before. Nineteen sixty-four would see the release of the Beatles' first movie, A Hard Day's Night. Unbelievably, also at this time, it would see the release of Brian's autobiography. This was ghostwritten by Derek Taylor, who would go on to become the Beatles' press manager, and it was entitled A Cellar Full of Noise. It was soon disparagingly referred to by John Lennon as a cellar full of boys, in a barbed reference to Brian's homosexuality. In fact, Lennon even suggested at one point that the book be entitled Queer Jew. When Brian heard digs about his sexuality or his faith, he would seldom bite. If in the right frame of mind, he was more than able of going along with it, but his usual practice would be to ignore the jibes, carry on with something, and sometimes just literally turn his back. By Brian's own admission, his biggest fear was loneliness. And despite his shrewd business sense and ability to negotiate deals worth hundreds of thousands of pounds with some of the toughest businessmen in the world, Brian was essentially a very shy person. There were, of course, a few relationships over the years, but none of them would ever work out for Brian. One aspect of the Beatles' phenomena that Brian would find difficult to keep control of was the Beatles' merchandising. But to be honest, this wasn't his fault. No one could have been prepared for the deluge of products that would appear on the shelves or market stalls featuring images of the four lovable mop tops. There were Beatles wigs, guitars, lunchboxes, shoes, jackets, blankets, pencil cases, sweets, you name it. Anything that could possibly portray a picture of the Fab Four was fair game. At first, Brian managed to inspect the products of every potential licensee, but as the popularity of the group snowballed, it was evident that more and more unauthorised Beatles goods were slipping through the net. Some by avoiding breach of copyright on the name Beatles by simply spelling it with two E's, for example. In the early days, Brian authorised deals whereby the manufacturers would do the licensing, collect the income and pay NEMS 10% of the proceeds. In hindsight, this was an extraordinary state of affairs because in reality the deal should have been the other way round, with the Beatles getting 90%. Back in 63-64, he couldn't be blamed. This was a new market on an unprecedented scale. Brian's love for the theatre would continue, resulting in him buying the Savile Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue with the strict intention of using it to present his own productions and music shows. 
Incidentally, the Beatles would go on to film the promo video for Hello Goodbye on the stage of that particular venue. The Beatles would continue to produce hit record after hit record, as would Brian's other acts and go from strength to strength. The Beatles in particular would produce album after album, hit single after hit single, and the relentless punishing worldwide tours would carry on. Stadium tours, the likes of which had never been seen before, would bring about their own set of problems which meant that Brian would have his managerial and diplomatic skills stretched to the limit. It's well documented that the Beatles were tiring of the endless touring schedule and were not happy as the immense screaming crowds meant that they could not be heard or even hear themselves play. Throughout this entire period of unrest, a series of events would unfold that would lead to the Beatles finally saying to Brian, enough's enough, no more touring. Beatles, 1965 will be the year of help, LSD and MBEs. No MBE for Brian, unfortunately, although many years later Ringo would say that Brian was always happy with what they would receive, and if he'd hung on, he'd have been going for a knighthood. 1965 was also the year for touring. The European leg included France, Italy and Spain, and then back to America in August included the now legendary Shea Stadium performance. The year would end with the recording and release of Rubber Soul and what would prove to be the final British tour. Nineteen sixty six, the Beatles next album Revolver was released in April of that year, before the Beatles would embark on a tour that would prove to be not only eventful, but life threatening and their last. After a couple of gigs in Germany, the Beatles flew to Japan. They were scheduled to appear at the Budokan in Tokyo, a sacred martial arts venue. This was the first time that a Western pop group had been permitted to play there, and threats were being made against their lives. It's estimated that there were 3,000 police for the 10,000 fans, and every time an audience member would rise or look like they were going to move towards the stage, they'd be photographed by security guards armed with cameras with enormous telephoto lenses. Some Japanese say that your performances will violate the Budokan, which is devoted to traditional Japanese martial arts, and you set a bad example for Japanese youth by leading them astray from traditional Japanese values. What do you think of all that? It's, uh, the thing is that if somebody from Japan, if a dancing troupe from Japan goes to Britain, 
Nobody tries to say in Britain that they're violating the traditional law, you see, or that they're trying to spoil anything. All we're doing is coming here and singing because we've been asked to. Well, it's more singing than wrestling anyway. Yeah. Well, we're not trying to violate anything. And, um, we're just as traditional anyway. Beatles would recall that the concerts there were very subdued and almost clinical, eerie and unlike any that they had performed at before. Following Japan, it would be on to the Philippines. The Beatles would recall that this was possibly one of the most frightening times for them in their touring career. On arrival, it was evident that their welcome was not like any they had received in other countries. They were bustled from the plane and hurried into cars, leaving their baggage and Brian on the runway. The four Beatles were taken to a motor yacht, anchored offshore and were surrounded by menacing armed security guards. Separated from Brian and the rest of their entourage, quiet panic began to set in. Brian would eventually arrive two hours later with the Philippine promoter, who was shouting and yelling along with other unnamed numerous figures. Eventually, after being taken off the boat and driven to a hotel suite, the group managed to settle down a little for the evening, still with the armed guards shouting outside. The following morning, further panic ensued. There was banging on the door and cries of people shouting and screaming that the Beatles should have been at the Royal Palace. Turning on the TV, they were confronted by images of crowds lining the streets outside the palace and the commentator gravely informing the viewing public that the Beatles had failed to arrive. This was swiftly followed by images of Madame Marcos herself screaming, they've let me down. What transpired is that the Beatles had indeed been invited by Imelda Marcos, but Brian had long since sent a telegram declining the invite as his boys didn't do that sort of stuff for anybody. Brian refused to allow them to get involved in politics, simple as that. It appeared that Brian's reply had been ignored. When quizzed by the Beatles as to what was going on, he replied, I cancelled it, you weren't supposed to go there. There are stories of things turning increasingly more nasty. Neil Aspinall would recall how he didn't eat for three days as foul-smelling food and soured milk were served in their hotel room. But eventually, the Beatles played two fairly successful gigs to about 100,000 fans. Newspaper headlines shouted out how the Beatles had snubbed the First Lady, and as they were ready to leave, it was apparent that there was no transport laid on for them as arranged. Eventually, jumping into taxis with an angry mob baying for blood, Brian and the Beatles fled to the airport, where here they were forced to carry their own amplifiers, luggage and equipment. They were jostled and bullied throughout by menacing armed thugs. Even waiting on the plane, they were not allowed to leave until Brian handed over £17,000 in cash to an alleged representative of the Manila promoter as payment for some unspecified tax. And if all that wasn't enough, a certain interview that John had given to Maureen Cleave earlier that year would come back and haunt them on their final US tour. 
Maureen Cleave was well known to the Beatles. She would publish regular Beatles reports in London's Evening Standard and in February 1966 an interview between her and John Lennon was printed during which she asked him, and the other Beatles, his views on organised religion, if he had any. John's response was, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. John would continue by saying that he had nothing against Jesus, but he described the disciples as thick. They're the ones that ruin it for me, he added. These remarks went unobserved in Britain, let alone unopposed. But what caused the ensuing uproar was this. The original Evening Standard interview was reprinted by Datebook, a team magazine, and what had originally been a mere observation had now become a looming headline and a threat to the safety of the group as a whole. A misplaced ad-lib had transformed into flaunting sacrilege. In effect, John Lennon was proclaiming that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. What was to follow was a wave of anti-Beatles protests across the southern states of America. Bonfire parties were set up with disc jockeys urging the public to come forward and burn their Beatle merchandise, records and memorabilia. And they did. The Ku Klux Klan got involved and Beatles records were banned by at least 35 radio stations from New York to Utah. As all of this was unfolding, Brian Epstein was ill at home. He hadn't fully recovered from the trip to Manila and subsequent visit to India, and was diagnosed with glandular fever. On his return, he had immediately cancelled Scylla Black's planned tour of the Philippines. But of course, what Brian cared for most was the boys, and especially the possibility that they may suffer abuse or even be in danger. So, Brian, still not well, flew to America on the eve of the American tour and began to apologise. I have prepared a statement which I will read, which has had John Lennon's absolute approval this afternoon uh, with myself by telephone. Uh, And this is as follows. The quote which John Lennon made to a London columnist more than three months ago has been quoted and represented entirely out of context. He told promoters at a press conference that if they wished to cancel any shows he would fully understand. Not one show was cancelled. Brian's press statement read as follows. The quote which John Lennon made more than three months ago to a London columnist has been quoted and misrepresented entirely out of context. Lennon is deeply interested in religion and was at the time having serious talks with Maureen Cleave, who is both a friend of the Beatles and a representative for the London Evening Standard. What he said and meant was that he was astonished that in the last 50 years the Church of England, and therefore Christ, had suffered a decline in interest. He did not mean to boast about the Beatles' fame. He meant to point out that the Beatles' effect appeared to be, to him, a more immediate one upon certain of the younger generation. And so, what was merely a point of view was misinterpreted as blasphemy, and the apologies would continue when the Beatles eventually arrived. I was, I was, I'll try and tell you, I was sort of deploring the attitude. The, the thing, I wasn't saying whatever they were saying I was saying, anyway. That's the main thing about it. And uh, I was just talking to a reporter, but she also happened to be a friend of mine and the rest of us. At home, it was a sort of in-depth series she was doing. 
And so I wasn't really thinking in terms of PR or translating what I was saying. It was going on for a couple of hours and I just said it as just to cover the subject, you know. And that's, uh, and it really meant what, you know, I didn't mean it the way they said it. That's amazing. It's just so complicated. It's gone out of hand, you know. But I just meant it as that, that the Beatles, uh, I wasn't saying the Beatles are better than Jesus or God or Christianity. I was using the name Beatles because I can use them easier. And I was using, you know, because I can talk about Beatles as a separate thing and use them as an example, especially to a close friend. But I could have said TV or cinema or anything else that's popular or motor cars are bigger than Jesus. So I just said Beatles because, you know, that's the easiest one for me. I just never thought of repercussions. I never really thought of it. I wasn't even thinking, even though I knew she, she was interviewing me, but that she was going to, you know, that it meant anything. In reality, John didn't want to apologise because he didn't actually say what people thought he'd said. But as the situation became ever more real, Brian spoke with John and he eventually realised that it was the only thing to do. Three weeks later, the Beatles would play their last official live gig at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. For Brian, the end of the touring years left a huge void. After all, it was one of his major management responsibilities. But then, how much excitement could you get just rebooking Shea Stadium or Candlestick Park? For the Beatles themselves, they were having much more fun in the studio, and they were glad that the torment was over. Nineteen sixty seven was on the horizon, a psychedelic year that would bring success and catastrophe in equal measure. The story of the making of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band deserves a show to itself, and indeed I will tell that story nearer to the fiftieth anniversary next year. But in summary, the creation of that landmark album will produce some of the happiest and certainly the most creative times for the Beatles, overseen supremely by the masterful guidance of George Martin. Not long after the Sgt Pepper album took the world by storm, Brian arranged for the Beatles to appear on the first truly live international satellite TV broadcast entitled One World. Brian came into the studio announcing that it was to be broadcast to an estimated half a million viewers and that the Beatles had two weeks to come up with something. Not a problem. Einstein had very few true friends. His work would consume all of his time, but he would still manage to throw occasional parties for the closest of his acquaintances. 
and at night he would visit the Mayfair casinos and contrastingly some of the seediest pubs in South London. In May 1967, Brian was admitted briefly to the Priory Hospital in Roehampton, sent by his doctor for a complete rest. His admission there was on what could be described as a flexible basis, and two days later he was hosting a launch party for the Sgt Pepper album. Brian would return to the Priory on and off over the next nine weeks, returning home at one point briefly for lunch with his parents. Brian's moods would dip and soar. His insomnia would play heavily on his mind, and none of this was helped by the inclusion of LSD and marijuana in his life. After a couple of months of what Brian considered to be rest and recuperation, when in effect he was probably working just as hard as ever with brief spells of socialising and partying, Brian's health both mentally and physically began to improve. Until on July the 17th, Brian was told of the tragic death of his father Harry. This of course shattered Brian, as Harry seemed to be doing well following a heart attack the previous year. Following his father's funeral, Brian spent the next few weeks travelling up to Liverpool to comfort his mother Queenie, and in August she travelled down to stay at Brian's Chapel Street home. Brian had decided that now he should be closer to his mother and devote more time to her, as well as rededicating his time to Scylla Black buying a Greek island, fussing over the creation of Apple and formulating plans for the doomed and badly thought out magical mystery tour TV movie. Brian's mood would eventually lighten. He visited the casinos as usual and socialised with friends. And there was no clue as to what would happen next. The Beatles were in Wales at a seminar with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi when they heard the news. Looking back, when you hear from Brian's family, the Beatles, business colleagues and close friends, they are all of the same opinion. It was nothing more than a tragic accident that bank holiday weekend. Brian had taken a lethal cocktail of pills. Friends will recall that this was just an accident waiting to happen. Brian would take sleeping pills for his insomnia, often wake up in the middle of the night and take some more. This, coupled with his use of other medication, prescribed or otherwise, led to the fatal tragic outcome. A traditional Jewish affair took place on October the 17th at the New London Synagogue in Abbey Road, not five minutes' walk from the telephone box where Brian had cabled Hamburg with the news that EMI had signed their contract not five years earlier. 
It's true that by 1967 the Beatles and Brian were growing apart, but it was becoming a kind of natural process. Brian may not have been able to continue managing the Beatles as they themselves became more disjointed. But one thing is clear. When Brian Epstein was alive, pretty much everything fell in place and seemed to go right for the Beatles. After he was gone, apart from their music, things just didn't work out. Brian had managed to protect the Beatles within a tightly sealed bubble. Now his shelter and protection, although it may not have been obvious, was gone and there was profound disintegration. Possibly his management had its fundamental flaws, but at the heart of it he permitted the Beatles to achieve greatness and do what they did best, and that was to make music, some of the most recognised and best-loved music of all time. There's little doubt that Brian Epstein pretty much shaped the whole music industry as we know it today. If he hadn't taken that gamble on the boys, it's possible that they would have just faded away like so many other hopeful and ambitious groups of that time. Without Brian, they certainly would not have made the massive impact that they did. And because of that, the British invasion wouldn't have happened. And who knows, the rivalry between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones could possibly not have existed, thereby depriving us of the musical force that they are, even today, still touring 50 years later. Brian may even have ended up being one of the most celebrated dress designers of the 20th century, had it not been for Raymond Jones. Who can say? One thing that is entirely evident when you look back today at interviews with John, Paul, George and Ringo is the huge respect that they had for Brian. But above this is the sense that they truly loved him and were fully aware that their success was all down to him. No other pop act before or since has come close to matching the Fab Four in terms of innovation and social impact. Brian Epstein was known as the fifth Beatle, but he was also much, much more than that. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell the story of the year which kick-started this remarkable decade. It would see devastating natural disasters, turmoil in Africa, U2 spy planes and the gentle warming of the Cold War. With songs from Connie Francis, Adam Faith, The Shadows and Elvis Presley. See you next time as I bring you the hits and headlines from 1960. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley podcast and check out our website at rainbowvalley.org. You can send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com and you can also email me at that address and I'll send you a bonus mixtape episode featuring music relating to today's show. This has been a Stinking Pause production.